Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to welcome Austin Ogilvie, founder and co-CEO at Leica, to the show today. Austin, welcome. Ben, thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, great to have you here. Let's dive in and tell us a little bit about your SaaS and tech background. Yeah, sure. So like you said, I'm founder and co-CEO of a company called Leica. Uh, we are an information security and privacy compliance solution. Basically, we collect all of the digital exhaust that's relevant for a, a variety of different compliance standards that are essential for enterprise buyers today. So think HIPAA, if you're in digital health, SOC 2, which is increasingly relied upon by enterprise buyers in the United States across industries, ISO 27001, on and on the list goes. We help our customers understand what those requirements are, understand what the best practices are for how to implement the right controls. And then we automate the monitoring of their control environment and make it easy for them to stay on top of compliance in a, in a really robust way. And before Leica, I was founder and CEO of another startup in the data science space called YHAT. Uh, we had a number of different products. Our, our sort of flagship product was a machine learning infrastructure product that let you deploy R and Python models as very, very low latency APIs. And we ended up getting acquired by a, a bigger data science company called Altrix. And before that, I was working at an alternative lender called On Deck Capital, which inspired a lot of the machine learning solutions that we would later build at YHAT. We were building a lot of stuff uh, on top of advanced analytics at, at On Deck. That's great. So long tech background. So is your background, say by trade, is it is it technical engineering in nature or kind of what what ranks did you come up through in, in the tech scene? Sure. So by by training, I certainly have a have an arts and crafts background. I went to the University of Virginia. I studied Arabic and Spanish and political science. And I just by fortune had an internship at a small startup company then I should say then small startup company now quite big called Everfy. And at the time it was just the three founders in, in a room plus me, the intern. And it was the first opportunity that I had ever had to see that you could build things for a living. And there was basically no turning back at that point, but all of my technical skills I learned on the job, the, the, the open source statistical programming tailwinds were quite enormous in in and around 20, 2009, 2010, 2011, with the advent of popular libraries in R, Wes McKinney's Pandas package for Python, I sort of was a part of that whole ecosystem, but, but totally self-taught. And I would self-describe more as a hacker than I would as a proper formally mm -hmm. trained software engineer. <laughs> yeah, okay, appreciate that background. And then like you mentioned, info security and compliance, and I love that you said, I think collecting digital exhaust, uh, that's great. And so tell me who, so in security and compliance, right, huge today. And like, who is the audience here? Who's your customer? Who are you going after for, for your product? Sure. So I, I guess just to back up to mm -hmm. how I came to, to arrive at intellectual and commercial curiosity in this space overall, when, when I was running YHAT, our core audience were enterprise customers. Some of our larger customers were Intuit, Doximity, Johnson & Johnson, PayPal. These types of organizations take vendor risk quite seriously, especially when they're looking to bring a new piece of infrastructure into their stack 
And, you know, it was quite uh, a steep learning curve to understand how to work a early stage product, get your foot in the door with a company like that. And a lot of it has to do with security reviews and being able to demonstrate provably the, the, the practices that you're using to secure systems, to protect data, the sort of enterprise readiness expectations of different, different companies in different geographies and in different industries is all over the place. So I, I guess I start there because mm-hmm. a lot of the stumbling blocks that I encountered when I was building Hat, and then indeed that I observed post M&A at Altrix with their world-class sales organization really, really uh, induced a desire to bring about a, a better solution to some of these information security and privacy compliance challenges. And mm-hmm. uh, today, our audience, unsurprisingly, are predominantly technology companies. So we serve basically any, any B2B software company from small startups to sort of growth stage pre-IPO digital native orgs, if you will. Mm-hmm. If, if you're selling basically anything B2B in, in SaaS these days, you are very, very likely to encounter routine security assessments to require all, all types of demonstrable compliance. And that's the audience that, that we, we, we help. Yeah. And that's really interesting. And, and, you know, I talk to and work with a lot of SaaS founders and, and not and I was surprised one time when they're like, oh, we're going through SOC 2 and kind of a smaller SaaS company. So do you, so your, your product, I mean, do you think this is now, was this previously like a big company thing, you know, and now you're bringing it down into smaller software tech companies to make this more accessible? Totally. So there are enormous tailwinds behind overall third-party vendor risk management and indeed fourth party, fifth party sort of derivative risks that you take on by virtue of the software that you use to run your company. And the certainly COVID accelerated the already in progress trend towards SaaS instead of desktop software and cloud infrastructure, as opposed to running, you know, bare metal in a closet somewhere at, at JP Morgan or the like. And that has meant a inc- incredible surge in popularity of SaaS tools. And with that comes a great deal of additional risk and it trickles right down. So mm-hmm. the, the Cambridge Analytica is name your favorite data breach or misadventure in technology. This sort of scrutiny has wound its way throughout all kinds of companies that are no longer just the Yale New Haven or, or the, the JP Morgans or the city groups of the world. It really is every company is now worried about this. And for good reason, like if I remove my founder seller hat for a second and all the frustration that comes with compliance in in security and and privacy, and I just wear my citizen's hat, it's sort of a good thing for the world that these tailwinds are, are, are happening at such a good pace. But it's, it doesn't make it any, any easier for technology companies that are trying to figure all of it out. Yeah. So if I'm a SaaS founder listening right now and say I've got a couple million in revenue and maybe this wasn't even on the radar, do you think now this, and I'm B2B SaaS selling to say mid enterprise, larger enterprise companies, do you think now this should be on, on my radar if, if I'm a SaaS founder going B2B? I, I think about it all the time. I mean, I, I can rattle off deal after deal, literally millions of dollars worth of sales that I, I lost, that I, that I know that I lost. This, the mm-hmm. scariest part of this is from a growth perspective is uh, it, it's, it's sort of a bug that fails silently. Like in programming, 
you have bugs that are loud that users complain about and you know about them because of the complaints. And those are, are unfortunate and you don't want them, but at least you know about them and you can fix them. Mm -hmm. Compliance to an enterprise growth organization uh, tends to be a bug that fails silently where you just can't count the number of glances at your website where the, per, the perceived or actual immaturity of your organization meant that a customer that would have been a great customer for you simply didn't get in contact. They took one look and walked away. So long-winded way of saying, I, I do view this as an essential day one capability, you know, putting in place the right norms and traditions with respect to managing your cap table or managing your books, uh, you know, undergoing a financial audit. It, these are routine organizational good best practices that any company would never forego. And I, I would say, uh, if for no other reason than getting folks who are eager to buy your product actually across the finish line. Compliance is now one of those things. Yeah, I love that because you think, hey, I'm founding a SaaS company, B2B, you know, I've, all right, I've got to form the entity, have the structure, cap table. And now, right, Austin, you're saying, hey, yeah, you got to think about compliance, security, SOC 2, are you healthcare tech? And maybe you need HIPAA compliance and just thinking of that right out of the gate, which makes makes a lot of sense. And what, what year did you found like? So we, I, so I have two amazing business partners, Sam, mm -hmm. my co-CEO, and Eva, Sam comes from a very similar professional background to, to me. We, we were both built previous startup companies, both worked in New York tech for our whole careers. Eva, totally different profile. She was at Citigroup as a managing director, basically overseeing third-party vendor risk management, IT security, gov various technical governance responsibilities. And the three of us met in 2019 and incorporated in May, April or May of 2019. Uh -huh. And we raised a seed round that summer, late June. And that's really when things got started. Okay, great. And then where are you located? Are you virtual? Do you have some sort of physical presence right now? Yeah. So from the very beginning, we, we planned to have a, a large portion of the team remote. Our head of engineering, he and I have worked together for a long time. He lives in Costa Rica. And so we sort of knew we were going to build our engineering team there. But obviously, the pandemic took things to a, a new normal for everybody. And we just signed our first lease, though we haven't moved in yet. We'll move in, in January 1st. Wow. And it'll be in New York. Sort of the center of gravity for the U.S. team is the New York area. But we're Zoom children all. So there's definitely been huge gains to be had by being able to hire yeah. top talent anywhere you find them. So I think that trend probably is going to continue regardless of whatever relationship we have on the go forward to a physical office. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And let's talk about talent. What's your team yeah. size right now? So we're about 190 worldwide. The, the center of gravity, like I said, in the U.S. is, is mm -hmm. the New York area. And then the next biggest portion is, is around San Jose, Costa Rica. Okay, great. And then tell us anything you want to share around the size of your company, ARR revenue, magnitude of your company right now. So this has been quite a journey. I think it really crystallized in my, in, in my mind what it actually means to have achieved product market fit. Back when I was running YHAT, I probably would have had very, quite believable, even to myself, story about how we'd achieve product market fit and to a certain degree I think we did, but it, it took five years to get north of a million and a half in revenue. At Leica, we eclipsed that number 
you know, within a year and then took it past 10 in another six quarters. So the growth has been quite phenomenal to see. Okay. Yeah, that's amazing. So in a year, already got to a million and a half and then another six quarters, you're saying, hey, you already eclipsed 10 million in revenue. So amazing growth there. So tell us, yeah, your product market fit comes up a lot. So anything you want to share there about your your product market fit or go to market motion or, or just the triggers that you saw that said, I think, I think we're onto something and I think we found fit. Now let's scale. Yeah. I, I mean, so startups are like by nature experimental. Like the job in the very, very early days is to walk the parameter space of problem and solution until you find the right match. And the giveaways for us, and I think we probably aren't entirely unique, though there are probably other indicators that would work for other types of companies, highly predictable sales cycles, regardless of seller. You can put almost any AE on the phone, regardless of who they are, what they sound like, where they live, what their accents are, et cetera, and get similar results. I I think for us, that was probably one of the, the biggest sort of light bulbs going off. Hey, we really have something here. This is not just Sam and his magic founder ability to sell or Austin or, or, or Eva, this is a, a, a solution that actually lots of people need and isn't tremendously customized on a, on a deal by deal basis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So a predictable sales cycle, regardless of the rep that maybe that magic rep that always closes deals, but you're getting similar results to the biggest, biggest light bulb. And so you recently raised, I think, a 35 million Series B. And how much capital have you raised to date now? Yeah, sure. So we, when we started the company, we raised $3 million seed round. And mm-hmm. then the following summer, 2020, we raised a $10 million A. And then the following summer, summer 2021, we raised $35 million Series B, led by JP Morgan's growth platform. And then just this past summer, we raised a Series C, $50 million, led by uh, Finn Capital and Centana Growth. And so total, we've raised just under $100 million. Okay, great. Yeah, a lot of ca- capital raised there. And I think a lot of lessons probably learned along the way. And, you know, so from seed to A to B to C, any lessons that you want to share with other SaaS founders listening right now? You know, and I think some of the times the hardest part is like, when do I raise? You know, how much do I raise? You know, so what lessons or, or triggers did you see that you'd like to share with, with other SaaS founders as far as your fundraising journey? I, so, I mean, it's, it's such a cliche, but you always want to raise when you don't need it. But it, it indeed is true. Uh, we actually just hired our, our first CFO. He's amazing. And he likes to talk about startup journeys are never just pure up and to the right. The journey looks like a sequence of S-curves, and I I think the analogy is really, really useful. You can sort of think about the the, the milestones on this of S-curves as being indicative both of how the company is actually uh, performing, but also a a, a direct answer to your question. You want to raise when you are cresting, not when you're on a trough on this hopefully upward journey overall, but understanding where you are locally on that curve is quite important. And so from our perspective, like the, 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 the growth was not slowing down, obviously, like every entrepreneur in the world, I was quite worried to see how this whole macro situation plays out. So that obviously 
encouraged us to raise a little bit earlier probably than we would have otherwise. But generally speaking, you want to know that you are on, on a crest. And for you know the, the A round, that is some indication of product market fit. It could be revenue. It could be some non-trivial user adoption for another kind of business. And for, for us, it was we have the right sort of key management in place to really dial it up and capitalize on a lot of the successes that we've been seeing, a robust omni-channel sort of sales line where it's not just deals coming from one place, but actually several that have been proven out. So there were a few sort of uh, indicators, but I, I think the, the what predicts whether you're on the crest of one of these S-curves or the trough, it, it definitely varies by stage and clearly it varies to some degree by what your company does and so on. Yeah, that's great. And then, so you say series A kind of that, you know, a clear indication of product market fit. And how would you see, say your series B and C, like you just continue to see growth and it's like, hey, all right, we need just more capital to continue to scale this. So would you say B and C is just that, is the scale mode? Yeah, so I think the the A was really, we had proven that all the, the three of us founders, I, Sam and I are, are very similar from professional perspective, but he grew up in China. He sounds very different on the phone, Eva. She's more senior than we are, comes from a compliance background. Like the proof points in just the three of us meant quite a lot because we were ourselves so different and coming from such different career backgrounds. We also had a couple of proof points in the very, very first quota bearing hires that we had. And then the, the B was basically proof, proved that we could train quota bearing sellers, ramp them to success predictably and started to show threads of success in different channels, inbound and outbound and partnerships, et cetera. Um, the C was that we could do each of those at scale and, and just mere reps alone, you know, matter more, it turns mm -hmm. out. Okay. I love that. I love that characterization and all the lessons learned there. And as we wrap up here, what's coming up for Leica? What's, what's new and exciting that's coming up for the company? So from a product perspective, and I don't know how deep down the rabbit hole you want to go here, from a product perspective, there's an incredible diversity of these information security and privacy standards. Some of them are regulatory, GDPR in privacy land, HIPAA if you're holding PHI, et cetera. Some of them are non-regulatory, but increasingly non-optional, PCI if you're holding card data and SOC 2 and ISO, as we said. Mm -hmm. um, so we will be coming out with quite a number of additional new frameworks to help our customers. This is by popular demand. You know, there are very, very strong positive selection biases among customers that tend to need more compliance help. It's indicative that they're entering new markets, that they're having success with their products in market. So that is sort of core to our, our roadmap for the next year or 18 months. And growth. I mean, putting in place a CFO has been already quite a lever and we'll be looking to, to make a number of additional hires to the leadership team. Yeah, that's great. And one, one more question before we wrap up here, but your persona, you know, that you're selling into because a range of companies and company sizes. So is it sometimes you're talking to SaaS founders, others that you're talking to the CTO, or maybe they have a, a CISO or who, what persona are you selling into when you talk to these organizations? Great question. So the, the, on the earlier stage side of the customer base, definitely it is not uncommon to be talking to the founders directly. Could be a CEO, it could be a mm -hmm. CTO, 
it, it could be a very early hire on the product team. It's it sort of, there is no compliance or security professional when you're a 10 person startup, which is frankly is precisely what inspired Sam and me to be worried about this problem and, and interested in it in the first place. But as the, the customer grows, and, you know, you're, you're dealing with compliance teams, you're dealing with security engineering teams, you're, you remain in, in comms with CTOs. They're pretty important it seems regardless of what size audience you're selling to. Okay. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Always interesting to see who you're trying to reach within these organizations. And, you know, so Austin, really appreciate your time today, sharing your background, sharing more about what Leica does. And if listeners want to learn more about your company, where should we send them online? Yeah, sure. So our website is heyleica.com. That's H-E-Y-L-A-I-K-A.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. Okay, perfect. So if you want to learn more about Austin and Leica, check out Leica H-E-Y-L-I-K-A.com to learn more. And Austin, really appreciate your time and, and continued success. Thanks so much, Ben. Really appreciate it.